the World Nomads podcast bonus episode. Hear amazing nomads sharing their knowledge, stories and experience of world travel. Thanks for tuning in. Kim and Phil with you and another amazing nomads podcast. This episode focuses on somebody named Eric Maddox. Yeah, look, Eric was inspired by travel to create the virtual dinner guest project, which brings everyday people together from different countries, uh, mostly the US and countries it's in conflict with. So you can see where this is heading. Mm-hmm. He gets them to share a meal via video link with the aim of bringing, breaking down those cultural barriers and uh, getting rid of those misconceptions. Yeah, now Eric also shines the spotlight on mainstream media, questioning the nightly bite-sized news grabs that can lead to misunderstanding rather than conversation, which is what he's all about. And Phil, a disclosure, both you and I have journalism backgrounds in uh, both radio and TV. Yep, yep, we're responsible for some of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Eric also has a podcast, The Latitude Adjustment, with interviews emphasising uh, voices in what Eric describes as the global south, with context, local insights and solutions that are too often absent from traditional news coverage. It's a great podcast, actually. Check it out. Eric, did it all begin, though, with the virtual dinner guest? Well, it depends on what you mean by it. <laughs> um, like my my questioning about, um, let's see, my responsibilities as a as a citizen of my country, the U.S. and also of the world, um, and uh, my my curiosity about my place with respect to both of those um, identities. I'd say that that started a bit earlier, and that the virtual dinner guest project and my current work with the podcast, the latitude adjustment. Um, I'd say that uh, those are extensions of that kind of that journey of questioning and that very physical journey in the, in the world. So I just say that, yeah, I mean, my questioning, um, really began with my, with my first experiences traveling first. I mean, going back to when I was like a kid and I had this unique opportunity to travel with an aunt and an uncle to Zimbabwe. And then, uh, and just, yeah, I saw some things that were so far removed from what I considered to be normal as an American kid growing up in central California that it just got my wheels turning. And then I traveled to the Middle East about a year after the attacks on September 11th happened in the U.S. um, because I had a lot of curiosity and some anger. And I wanted to understand a little bit more about, quote unquote, that part of the world. I mean, at that point, I was kind of thinking of it all and just like the Middle East is one place and not a diverse region. And uh, it was those two events probably that really started me on my path. So I guess the obvious question from that answer is your take on news media and questioning the idea that what if the evening news was replaced with the evening conversation? How do you view mm-hmm. uh, world news at the moment or, new, you know, news bulletins? There's definitely areas where I could generalise, but I want to be careful and point out that, that I'm aware that that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I think that there are some excellent uh, news outlets out there and a lot of really great stuff being done by independent producers. And I'm not just saying that because I'm one of them. Um, I think that the the internet has democratized media production in some ways that are really exciting. And that also means that everybody gets a voice, so there's a lot of noise. But it, it gives us a lot of freedom to not necessarily have to rely on advertisers or traditional revenue streams to be able to get our message out or cultivate a following. So that's really cool. As far as traditional or quote unquote mainstream media, um, yeah, it's it's kind of a mess, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, especially I'd say U.S. television news 
And I, I mean, I know what the popular networks are to single out, but I'm not really interested in doing that. I think that it's all kind of a disaster from start to finish. And, uh, and it's just a question of where the things are on the spectrum. I think that, I mean, where to begin with that? I think one of the chief problems is the soundbite culture. And I'm not sure where to assign blame there, if that's due to short attention spans and, um, and a lack of curiosity on the part of the consumer, or if that's what's being cultivated in us by, uh, by a commercially, commercial interest-driven um, media culture that's more interested in keeping us tuned in long enough to buy the next product that they're trying to sell us on that network. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of a time or attention paid to nuance and to not just presenting uh, simplistic narratives that just reinforce stereotypes about different places around the world, especially the global South. Um, for me, it's that second and that third question that need to be the focus of more of the coverage of global events and also context. We, when we're hearing about conflict or we're hearing about why the consequences of even a natural disaster are so severe in some places that they're not in others, um, it's often treated as if these things are taking place in a historical vacuum. I see a responsibility of the media um, to keep the citizens informed and to address the public interest and to speak truth to power. I was. Just makes sense. No, you know, no, it's great. And it's fantastic. And you've really just challenged me on a lot of things there on a very personal level. And I appreciate that. I really do. And I, I agree with so much of what you're saying. A bit of background on me. I used to be a television news producer. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's fine. I mean, but, no, what you're saying, a lot of that is really true. And I'm just thinking right now as we're having a chat, it's like, so it's a half hour bulletin and, you know, there was a certain amount of time allotted for sports and weather and, you know, we had three commercial breaks to fit in. So we knew exactly how much content we could fit in. And I'm trying to think why it is that a story had to be around about one minute and 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I think that was because we wanted to fit in as many as we could. So that's really challenged my you know, beliefs there about how long a story should be. But I totally agree with you. That makes them really vacuous and, you know, shallow. And I've interacted with quite a few journalists over the years and lived with a few too in my travels. And I do understand that this isn't necessarily down to the person who's actually presenting or even writing the news. There's that there's a chain of command, if you will. Yeah. yeah. And I also, I mean, I, I take your point that, that there are a number of stories to cover. And for me, okay, if you're reduced to one and a half minutes to cover like some sort of horrible humanitarian disaster someplace in Africa or pick a country because the rest of the coverage is also devoted to equally important topics, then I get it. But if half of the news coverage is devoted to a celebrity scandal and an implant malfunction, and then you're trying to squeeze in a couple of minutes at the end or in between these scandals to cover things that actually matter, that's where I get frustrated. Yeah, it is about conversation. And I guess that's what led you, Eric, to the Virtual Dinner Guest Project. And I'd like you to explain that for people listening. Nice segue. I see what yeah, you did thanks there. for bringing it back. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the Virtual Dinner Guest Project is, well, in a nutshell, it's getting people from countries that either share political conflict or share some sort of common cause and struggle, people, uh, typically students, to sit down and... Uh, connected by the internet, so, so some sort of video conferencing platform, sit down and share a meal together while they discuss uh, critical news issues. 
or points of tension and stereotypes between them. So they sit down on either end. So I've done, for example, I've connected uh, the Native American community in the U.S. to Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. And they sit down and have a 90-minute discussion over a meal on both sides. So it kind of looks like your dinner table is continuing into the other side's living room or classroom Mm -hmm. through this virtual connection. And you have a discussion uh, about whatever you've been reading about each other's communities in the press. In fact, we actually exchange news articles ahead of time from each other's communities about each other's communities to kind of compare how are we being reported versus how we see ourselves. And at the end of those discussions, each side then poses a question to the other side. And whatever question you receive, you then have about two weeks to take it to the street in your community and interview random people with this question that's been given to you by people in another country. And we take those two short films produced independently on both sides. They're about 10 minutes usually and post them online as a free public education resource. So it starts with like this intimate encounter around a virtual dinner table that's where the baseline is like mutual curiosity about each other's communities and um, a way to address uh, confusion and, um, and fear, and then taking that to the street and producing something that can actually educate the public. And the reason for that is, well, some of the things that we've already talked about. I mean, there's, there's a number of things that I'm trying to accomplish with it, but one of them is media literacy and getting people to think more critically about the news that they consume and how those narratives shape their view of the world and even of themselves. And that one of the best ways to challenge uh, ourselves is to expose ourselves to uh, the focus of those news articles directly. You know, instead of just reading a, a book that presents us with a competing set of theories, just talk to the people in that place. You know, remove the middleman, remove the editor. And this all came about because I saw myself playing that role at various points. Um, I did my graduate research in international conflict transformation, living in the West Bank in a refugee camp. This is back in 2007, 2008. And I spent about five months. Uh, Well, I spent several months living there and I spent a couple of months traveling around interviewing Israelis and Palestinians about their direct experience of the 1948 war. And I made a very, very basic documentary film out of that that led to getting some funds to do a similar project on the U.S.-Mexico border. This is around 2009, 2011. And in the middle of doing that project where I was interviewing Mexicans and Americans on either side of our wall, because there was already a wall, I realized that I had taken on more than I could handle with my limited budget and as basically one person. I had some assistance, but mostly it was just me. And I realized also I was duplicating something other people had kind of already done to some degree. What could I do that would be unique with my limited resources? So I decided to start connecting people directly um, in real time across the border at a moment when things were particularly violent in northern Mexico and where Americans were no longer really traveling there as tourists, so they weren't seeing the reality on the ground. So we, the first instance of the Virtual Dinner Guest Project was putting Skype cameras, uh, putting webcams in Mexican families' houses and connecting them to Americans uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, to have one of these sit-down discussions. And then from there, I crowdfunded this concept because at this point we're into 2011 and a lot of stuff is going on in the Middle East, if people remember, like the Egyptian revolution was in 2011. And so I, I crowdfunded and took off again for the Middle East. And I was thinking I might be gone for two months and four months would be a success. And it turned into uh, 
several years. So you're mm-hmm. not someone sitting in an office trying to achieve this. You're actually on the ground. Yeah. I mean, where to begin? Um, it, it wasn't my first experience of the Middle East and I covered a lot of ground. I, I wound up spending cumulatively probably over two years in Egypt and a good chunk of time, many months in Lebanon, and then wound up going to the Gaza Strip, to Syria uh, as well, about a, a year, I guess, after the conflict started there, and spent some time in Turkey, Tunisia, and a little bit of time in Jordan as well before uh, heading to India. So, I mean, one thing, I guess, if I wanted to point out one message that I'd like people to take home, especially when it comes to the Middle East and North Africa, is don't buy the hype that you're getting in the news. It's not that it's it's not that everything is just patent lies. It's it's not that. It's not that there's no conflict and no hardship and 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 no extremism. It's just that those things don't didn't really define my daily life there, uh, and I don't think that they define the daily lives of most people there. Poverty might, um, and a certain degree of frustration with their with their political circumstances and oppression might, but. I wasn't running around like dodging bullets and car bombs and car bombings and kidnappings, which is the image that I think a number of people have had of what I do during my travels that I'm this like extraordinarily brave, like James Bond type person. And, um, that I'm just wading into war zones and that's really not it at all. Um, I, I've felt much safer in most of these places than I have in big cities in the U S you know, walking after a certain hour <laughs> and, so that's, that's, I want to make that clear too. I'm not a brave person at all. And you don't need to be to experience um, the Middle East. And it's a diverse region. That would be the second thing that I would point out. That it's not, a, the Middle East is not a country. It's a manufactured Western construct. <laughs> it suggests a certain worldview that even, first of all, came up with and a certain agenda that came up with, like what defines that region and even its borders. What, what is the Middle East and what isn't is a subjective debate. It's just totally arbitrary. And so it's important for people to understand that while Arabic might be widely spoken, it's ethnically diverse, there's religious diversity, there's diversity even in the dialects of Arabic, which you'll quickly discover if you're trying to learn it. And that uh, I found that by and large, one of the most consistent themes in my travels in the Middle East is how hospitable and warm the people are uh, and how, I mean, the people will just take you off the street into their homes and feed you. Um, that was a consistent experience that I had. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us why travel is so important? And I guess it's a double barrel question and, and mm-hmm. discuss why it's important to be curious as a traveler. Yeah, that's, how, why it's important to be curious. I mean, I can't, it's hard for me to even separate those things out because for me, it's like, why would you travel if your motivation wasn't curiosity to begin <laughs> with? It's just hard for me to understand why it would even have appeal. I guess you could do like one of those all-inclusive resort packages and just chill out on the beach and pretend that you're anywhere. That's a thing. But to me, uh, I mean, to paraphrase Mark Twain, <laughs> I think he says something along the lines of like, it's hard to have charitable Um, and sympathetic views of humanity if you spend your entire life just rotting away in one small corner of the world. I think that I want to take people on a journey that I've been on and that I continue to go on. And it's not just one that has to do with geography. It has to do with philosophy. It has to do with personal growth and development. And But travel has been a part of that because it's challenged a lot of my preconceptions and continues to do that even traveling in the same places. Like I wouldn't say I'm an expert on any of the places that I've been at all. And 
it continues to reveal to me things that I don't necessarily like or wouldn't want to share openly. You know, it reveals my, my, my pettiness and my, and my prejudices and my ignorance on a variety of different levels. But if you're open to that, uh, there's a challenge that's put to you that can lead to growth and can lead to greater understanding. It can provide you with the opportunity to strike up friendships with people from a pretty wide range of communities. And so curiosity is what kind of determines where I want to go in the world and how I behave when I'm there. And I think that once you start to have your preconceptions challenged on any topic, it can translate to other elements of your life. You know, the, the, the impact that travel has had on me is not just that I've learned something about Egyptian culture. It's that I've learned something about nationalism and what it looks like in my own country because of how I've seen it play out in the streets in Cairo. It's that I've learned something about like the value of free speech and uh, individual liberties because I've seen places that don't have those things and understood like their importance back home and maybe where they're being threatened because I've been able to look at my own country now as an outsider, having seen uh, how some of these same uh, trends play out in other places that distance can lend you a really important measure of perspective when it comes to how you view your own community and your place in it. I found the uh, Mark Twain quote with a whole lot. Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. Amen. Yeah, amen. Amen. (laughs) So as we close your podcast, the Latitude Adjustment Podcast, what's Mm -hmm. it about? Um, The focus of the podcast itself is to highlight underrepresented views, uh, places, and uh, communities from around the world. I mean, going back to, again, like this kind of consistent thread in our conversation today, um, about media and what gets prioritized and soundbite culture, I kind of want to provide an antidote to that, to find the stuff that's getting not covered at all or being given like short treatment and do a deep dive. Um, most frequently, it's someone who's local. Every once in a while, it'll be somebody who, like maybe they did their PhD research on that area and they speak the language and they understand it well. And to try and understand root causes instead of just looking at symptoms and looking at defects, looking at, okay, why do the same places continue to remain in these conditions that are unlivable? Where might we begin to find some of the solutions to that by listening to the experiences of everyday people? If you consider yourself a global citizen, as I said before that chat, you must subscribe to the Latitude Adjustment to hear the personal stories that Eric captures so beautifully and watch or listen to the resources he provides to further continue the conversation and challenge those stereotypes and political narratives. Which... uh just happened to us a little bit there, didn't it? It did. It did, yes. <laughs> I feel much better now, but there you go. But look, speaking of stereotypes, we heard Eric talk about what is the Middle East and what isn't. Next week's Destination episode features uh, travel to Oman and we chat with local travel blogger Rama. Oh, yeah, it's a stereotype, I believe, you know, that Middle East is not the safe place. But you know what? Take my word. 
it is one of the safest places to travel in the world. I mean, people should move on now. Indeed. Now, more from Rama in the next episode, Phil, as you said, exploring Amman, which is growing in popularity as a destination, and we want to inspire you to visit this place before everyone else does. <laughs> you can get the World Nomads podcast through your favourite podcast app, rather, and Phil, to get in touch. Please do send us an email, uh, podcast at worldnomads.com. Who knows, that episode may just start a conversation. Bye. Bye. Amazing nomads. Be inspired.